Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. My guest today, Gabriel, co-founded and sold one of the earliest Bitcoin exchanges in Canada. We talked about his decision and experience starting an exchange, the limits to automated governance, decentralized statecraft, and a smart contract constitution. Agora Politics is dedicated to upgrading our outdated theories of politics. Doing so requires honest and forthright engagement with academics, intellectuals, entrepreneurs, Twitter anons, and luminaries of all types who are tuning into the zeitgeist and attempting to synthesize stories of the past with knowledge of the present and visions of the future. With that being said, I give you my conversation with Gabriel. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Gabriel. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, so we've got an interesting topic here today. Uh, you yourself actually started one of the earliest uh, Bitcoin brokerage firms. Uh, yes. not, not Yeah, not here in the United States, but actually uh, up in Canada. And uh, I'm sure that was an interesting experience, and uh, you're going to be able to tell us all uh, more about it in a minute. But before we get into that, I just want to frame the question, um, sorry, the conversation for today, which is around this concept of uh, Bitcoin, but not only Bitcoin, uh, I'd say crypto, the crypto space uh, more generally, DeFi, um, blockchains, maybe even other types of uh, data structures that, uh, that you know more about than I would. Um, for consensus building. And really, the reason I wanted to have Gabriel on is not just uh, for his brokerage experience, which I, I find actually uh, extremely intriguing, but also to talk a little bit more about how he thinks about, you know, the implications that these technologies might have for governance. Uh, and I'll just give a little bit of a backstory here. Uh, so I, I remember when I read the Bitcoin uh, white paper, you know, Satoshi's paper, uh, it was a long time ago. I think I probably first encountered it in like 2012. Um, yeah, it would have been when I went to went off to college. And then I also later on read the Ethereum white paper when that came out, I believe, in 2014. Um, and both of the times that I read those papers, uh, you know, I wasn't super bullish on crypto very early, um, but I did see, I'd say pretty much immediately that this technology was going to be a huge impact on not only the the economy but also you know the way that we organize uh, decision making right and and the way that governance happens more generally um, and so that's why I wanted to have you on today Gabriel um, but before we get into those broad questions can you tell us a little bit more about your experience um, opening up one of the earliest Bitcoin brokerages what got you first excited about Bitcoin and why you decided to go that route. Yeah. Um, so kind of starting from the beginning, like the way that I first learned about Bitcoin was a little bit of a circuitous path. So I was kind of in a mindset of trying to think of like ideas to build a company around. And I had this idea that 
you know, wouldn't it be cool if you could find some alternative to advertisements to powering kind of like the free internet? And the idea that I had was, well, what, what could a user give you in exchange um, for the free content? And the idea was, well, they have computing power in the browser that, that they could trade. And maybe that's useful enough to actually justify giving you the content for free and not showing you advertisements. So I was kind of like going down this rabbit hole. And the, the issue with this is like, you can't just do any old like computation. Um, you have to where, where like, cause most computation, you have to know like the answer to the first part before you can even ask the second part, you know? So you have to find something that's like massively parallelizable. And so I was looking for problems that were parallelizable, but also monetizable. And like in researching this, I came across Bitcoin. Um, I think similarly around what, like- What year was this? Like 2012, I think, similar okay. to you. Um, yeah, somewhere in there. And just became really fascinated by the technology itself. Like fell, fell in love with Bitcoin as an idea. And at the time I was kind of, really just thinking a lot about, um, you know, financial systems, like how the Fed works, sort of inflation built into our system, quantitative easing, kind of just feeling like, well, this is an injustice. And so I was really excited about Bitcoin and started just getting into it in different ways. Um, started building like arbitrage bots because there were just huge price discrepancies at the exchanges on those times. So you would see like 10, 10% difference in prices. So you could just like make a good amount of money um, circulating your money through these exchanges. And, and I was in college at the time too. So that was uh, really nice for me. Um, started mining as well, like started doing Litecoin mining because that was still doable at the time on graphics cards. Um, and yeah, I think I, I asked a question on stack overflow which is like a popular question and answer form and i was like where can you buy litecoin and the question just blew up it got like i think hundreds of thousands of people were reading it and so i just created a landing page for a website and was like litecoin exchange coming soon you know and got thousands of signups for it and so i was like okay now we build a bitcoin exchange or a litecoin exchange like how hard could it be um so that's what the beginning of like the reason to start doing this project was and just started going down the path like okay well how do you actually launch an exchange like on the one hand there's the technology side of it like okay you need to build a wallet you need to be able to source liquidity from somewhere um but you also need to interface with the actual financial system you need to make sure you're doing this legally and that's a really big headache um so yeah at the time you know the the de facto understanding in the US was that if you wanted to be a Bitcoin exchange or brokerage, you had to follow what's called money service business regulation. And money service business is it, it's a super onerous regulatory scheme because it's defined in every single state individually. And you actually have to apply in every state um, and you have to put up different bonding requirements, go through different application schemes. So it's a real pain in the ass. Um, so what we ended up doing was launching in Canada because they had a much clearer compliance framework for how you could go about doing this. Um, we were able to find a payment processor in Canada that was willing to work with us. We were able to, you know, source liquidity from Canadian exchanges. Um, 
and we launched there. And then we also ultimately launched in a few states in the U.S. that that did, uh, you know, have have a, a clear framework for like doing this without the burden of going through this huge licensing process. So, so I'm, sure it's, yeah. I'm sure it's changed, but what states were the most uh, friendly to your operation? Mm, you know, I can't even say I remember the exact list, but it was kind of like Wyoming, mm. I think Nevada, um, Oregon. I, I don't, I don't remember. Don't like, there were a few, um, today, like most crypto companies have decided that a much easier approach is to actually go about, um, getting trust licensing. So most of the big U S crypto firms are either trust companies or, um, Actually, Wyoming is is leaning into heavily into being like the crypto friendly state. So they've created a special banking charter um, that you can apply for as a crypto firm. Most of the times when you apply for a banking charter, you have to you have to provide a business case for how you're going to lend money. Like you have to prove that you can lend money profitably to get a banking charter and people that want banking licenses to be crypto firms have no interest in lending money because that's not, it's not really their model. They're really just trying to get access to the fed and access to the, the notcha and the wire networks. Um, so, so Wyoming's created this carve out for them. So that's pretty cool. So like Kraken, I believe got their um, banking charter in Wyoming. I think square also did could be wrong about that, but yeah. Cool, cool. Um, and you know, uh, so obviously you you had this opportunity where you know you created this landing page, it got hugely popular, uh, and then you said, "Oh crap, I better actually build this thing." Um, at the time, did you have any kind of let's say ideological commitments to the idea of decentralized uh, currency? Like, how, how what was your conception of Bitcoin uh, at the, at the time? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was very much an ideological believer in in creating a, a, a money system that couldn't be manipulated by the government. I was kind of of a political mindset such that inflation is is kind of this secret tax is, is theft from the general populace. And so if you can have a system that's able to avoid that then then that's really cool and kind of like having this sovereignty of money that existed independent of the nation state was like a really appealing idea to me um and i think that idea has been taken a lot further with this idea of just generalized distributed computing um in into spheres beyond money but i was really excited about it from a, just a pure money perspective at the time yeah so what ended up happening uh with, with that exchange yeah. So, you know, I think we had a, a decent level of success. We did several million dollars of transaction volume, but when you're charging, you know, 1% on trades, it's not that satisfying of a business to be in. Um, and what ultimately ended up happening was Coinbase raised a hundred million dollars and entered the Canadian market. And we just didn't see a viable path forward. I mean, in retrospect, I think had we just stayed at it and, held on to any reasonable amount of cryptocurrency, it would have turned out great. But, um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. So we ended up just putting it out there that we were um, 
wanting to to sell the business and and found a buyer and we're able to pay back our investors and profit a little bit. Cool, cool. Um, what did uh, Coinbase do that was different than the uh, existing solutions that were in the market? Was it really just the consumer side, like getting the nice app that people can sort of just access without understanding very much? Yeah, at the time, that was a really big deal because just using an exchange is a intimidating experience for someone that doesn't have familiarity with it or i mean even just the idea of like how an order book works and what a market is is something most people don't have a grasp of i think Mm -hmm. um so just that really clean interface where it's like you buy some bitcoin how many bitcoin do you want here's the price um is really straightforward i think they've done a lot more since then but that's that's what got them in the door cool um and so how has your uh thinking evolved you know, since that experience, uh, are you still working in the blockchain space? Uh, and do you have a different perspective either on Bitcoin or is there some other uh, technology that you're more excited about? Uh, you know, how, how have you evolved uh, since that experience? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I think... Um, my thinking has evolved a lot about blockchain, about, um, you know, what can be done with decentralized technologies. I think one thing, you know, I was kind of like, my, my thought always was, and part of the reason maybe that led to the selling of the, the brokerage in the first place was, it one, it was a crypto like down period, I think, at the time. Um, and my thought was, you know, crypto can succeed, but the price doesn't need to be crazy. Like there's no reason that those two things have have to happen. Like you can have this decentralized monetary system without having Bitcoin go to dollars, right? So, and at the time it was like a thousand dollars. So it, it seemed crazy that it even get to where it is today. Um, and so I was a big believer in that future, but I wasn't sure that um, it would come with with the the price. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one thing, and I think maybe. The, the natural dynamics of it are such that maybe I miss, un, I at least underestimated the potential for that price increase. Um, I think you also have these, these proliferation of, of new types of digital currencies, right? You have Ethereum was the first one where they're kind of trying to say, we're going to be the world's computer. Yes. And they've kind of backed off of that a little bit because they're like, well, our computer's really slow. Um, and but I think that's a really interesting idea. And you want to have, like, why, why don't we want to have our core internet infrastructure be built in a decentralized way? Like, why do we want to have it be sent, like, censorable by centralized parties? Um, and, or, or just like, have total visibility into it, have it be auditable or, or have visibility into it. Um, Yeah. Well, so uh, you've pointed out then some skepticism you had about uh, about Bitcoin that that came up um, just in terms of the, you know, I guess I don't know if you're really getting at like this scarcity component, because I I think you still believe in scarcity, right? The importance of not simply it's scarce, but it's also infinitely divisible or not infinitely, but, you know, really divisible. Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, so Ethereum has some uh, throughput problems. Uh, what what exact what technology are you most excited about right now? Well, so I think that there's a lot of interesting ways to add scalability to blockchains. So Ethereum's trying to do proof of stake. They're trying to do ETH 2.0. Yes. Um, then you have kind of like the the sort of layer one alternatives, which are, you know, okay, how can we create some sort of blockchain that has much higher throughput? And usually the way you do this is by trading um, centralization in some way. So you can say, oh, well, if we actually condense the, the nodes that are validating transactions, then we can speed up throughput a lot more. Um, I think the technology I'm currently most excited about from a from a like let's crank the speed on blockchains perspective is um, like the avalanche technology and they have their snow set of consensus algorithms where their idea is that they are instead of like validating transactions sequentially mm -hmm. um, there's a probabilistic approach to it where it's like if the, the ordering doesn't matter and all nodes don't have to have total knowledge of every transaction at all times, but you can still have very strong guarantees around um, like avoiding double spend, which is the core yeah. kind of problem you're trying to address. Um, so I'm excited about that. But I also think that there's, there's somewhat, blockchain is in a way, it's kind of overhyped as a solution to decentralized architecture right yeah like nature is highly decentralized but it doesn't work like a blockchain like with a blockchain you have to have or at least in sort of like the nakamoto consensus like the way bitcoin works the way ethereum currently works every single node has to have complete knowledge of every single transaction on the network and so your throughput is defined by your slowest node mm -hmm. and and also, you if you want to do anything, it has to be copied to every player in the space. And that's kind of undesirable. And so you could imagine doing something like, oh, let's say I wanted to create a decentralized version of Twitter, right? Well, you could imagine that maybe you want to know your own tweets and you want to know the tweets of the people that you follow. And if you ever need to like reload your account, you know, you can always just go, hey, friends, like you probably follow some of the same people as I do can I get a copy of all the tweets I care about, right? And you could create a network like that that doesn't have that sort of like crazy amount of duplication um, that, that's way more efficient, right? And so I'm also interested in just like decentralized, fra like frameworks for building decentralized applications that maybe have components of blockchain, but yeah. aren't rigorously blockchain. Because yeah, you really care, blockchain really cares about not having people spend money twice. And that's really important if you're trying to build a decentralized money system, but it's not as important for other kinds of decentralized systems where it's like if someone publishes a tweet on your behalf, but it gets removed in 30 seconds, it's no big deal. But if someone publishes like a spend on your behalf and then they can permanently extract value from the network in that 30 second period, you've got a big problem. Hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like you know, depending on the use case, um, you know, the, there could be other structures that are just that serve that serve you better um, in terms of, you know, 
uh, well, I wouldn't say robustness, but like in terms of uh, redundancy, right? Um, and uh, are you have you uh, are you familiar with like the Hashgraph? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Hashgraph is like another um, consensus algorithm that is sort of attempting to sort of supersede blockchain in many ways. And um, I, I believe the issue with Hashgraph is there's only like one company that can use it, but um, it, that's like the, the most recent thing that I'm aware of that's sort of, uh, you know, in, in is following the principles of decentralization, but isn't using a, a blockchain for it. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So I want to get into my, um, I guess I, sort of the core of why we're talking about, you know, decentralized, uh, decentralized finance, decentralized applications more generally, which is the implications for governance. Um, so where do I want to start? Because, you know, you could start almost anywhere with this. Um, in a way, the ambition of Bitcoin, regardless of whether or not it, it will ultimately be realized, uh, you know, if you think that Bitcoin will be a world currency, maybe if you think uh, it will just exist in a pool among many other other currencies, that's probably, I'd say, the, the scenario that I think is most likely at this point. Um, but Bitcoin could reign supreme. It could be the most valuable currency. Um, I just don't think it'll be the only one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the narrative is it's gold 2.0. And yes, it's yeah. the only contender for that narrative. And maybe it wins. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in terms of the design space that Satoshi Nakamoto was working in, he actually crafted something very tight, despite whatever its flaws might be. Um, that is actually hard to improve upon, I'd say, in terms of its core core functionality. Um, that being said, uh, and I don't mean as a medium for exchange necessarily. Um, that being said, uh, one of the you know one of the core um, aspects of Bitcoin that I think uh, you can come around to more readily if you understand the Ethereum uh, architecture is that it's outsourcing a particular function of the state. Right. So the state uh, establishes the monetary system. It prints money. It determines as part of its sovereign charter uh, what the valid uh, you know, unit of exchange or currency is going to be within its domain. And then through uh, you know, various kinds of monetary policy, it can uh, it can manipulate and arbitrage uh that currency and also change the way in which it interfaces with other currencies. And so there's all kinds of scheming that goes on within the global financial system between currencies and manipulation and uh, different kinds of trades that you can do to, uh, you know, kind of uh, leech, yeah, I guess, arbitrage between the sort of patchwork of established currencies that exist. Um, And when you, Take that um, decentralized component as an operation of the state, and you extend that out with something like Ethereum, which allows you know a, a Turing complete computation network. You then start to realize that there are many other operations of the state that could also be outsourced or reformatted in this decentralized way. Um, and so, how do you think about the implications of decentralization? Uh, let's say decentralization, let's say I'm not even sure what, what word to use because I would use blockchain, but like it's sort of more than blockchain at this point. Um, decentralized technologies uh, 
how do you think about the implications of decentralized technologies for our current uh, governance structures that exist? Uh, mm -hmm. And I'll let you just go off that. Yeah. So, I mean, initially I was very bullish on the idea of like the DAO or the decentralized autonomous or anonymous organization. Um, pick, pick your A. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think in thinking about it a lot more, it's, it's definitely not a silver bullet. Like, I don't think that just because you decentralize government, all of a sudden government doesn't be good, become good. And you, you run into like the, the advantage of a human government is that you can kind of be a little loose with your rules. You can be flexible on them. You're not rigid in like the rules, like these rules are definitely immutable and these rules are mutable. Um, in these ways, like everything's a little bit fuzzy and everything, if you push on it hard enough, you know, like there's no magic to, to the law. Like I'm, I'm a fan of this kind of idea, um, of legal realism, which is like, you know, you, on the one hand you have what's, what's written, but, but the law is actually what the legal actors in the system carry out. Like, what do the judges actually do? What do the police actually, who are they actually listening to? Who is the army actually listening to? Like, that's what the law is. Um, and so you, you know, on the one hand, like, okay, so you could say we have this like smart contract based legal system, but to the extent that, that we want that legal system to actually have an impact on our, on our physical world, right. It still comes down to our, our people actually respecting what's being said. Okay. The contract spits out, you know, attack country B, but like, are they going to do it? Are they going to listen? Like that's still important. So, you know, contracts can kind of have like absolute sovereignty over things in the digital realm, over things that live in, you know, the virtual machine that is kind of Ethereum, right? Mm -hmm. So a classic example of like an easy system to build is you could have a will, right? And you could have this, you, you, put, you put money in here and you say, hey, if I don't check in with you every year, distribute the money to these four people. Right. Or you could you could make it a governance system where you could allow, say, three people to check in and or you could have them manipulate like, oh, well, this person's allowed to vote that actually like we don't like her. She gets 10 percent less or something. Mm -hmm. um, so you have you have the problem of enforceability, like in the smart contract world, smart contracts can have things that exist in the sort of computer. Um, and then you get to this other problem of kind of like oracles. Where, where are you actually getting the information from? You know, you could have this sort of decentralized betting network where you allow people to vote, to, to place bets on who's going to be the next president, you know? But it's like, well, who tells it who actually won? Someone has to do it. Someone has to be. So do you mind just, do you mind just uh, for the listeners telling the audience a little bit about what an Oracle is exactly? So an oracle um, is is a term used in in crypto DeFi stuff a lot, which is referring to basically your information source, like for something that needs to be told, kind of like this: who won? Who won the election? Right? Like the blockchain has no knowledge of that; it has to be told it externally. Or if you wanted to have a will that actually looked at, you know. Um, the death records of a county, like 
the, the county would be the oracle in that case. Um, so you can get clever and you can kind of construct systems that don't rely on an oracle, right? So on the one hand, you could look at the death records of the county. On the other hand, you could do kind of like a dead man switch proof of life thing where it's like, as long as I check in, you know, assume I'm alive. If I don't check in for some period of time, assume I'm dead, right? That system doesn't require an oracle. But so you get into these governance problems and then very quickly, like you arrive at needs for oracles all over the place. Mm -hmm. So a big problem in, in crypto is like, how do you actually, you know, come up with reputable oracles? And I think there's some interesting, I, I think as the crypto space matures, um, you get into these, you start being able to like use crypto systems as oracles themselves, right? So for instance, if you wanted to have a, like, um, an option trading system, right? And you need to know the, you need to know like the, the price of the underlying asset to be able to make the option contract work. You can actually use a decentralized exchange as your pricing source, right? So that's kind of cool. So like your decentralized exchange becomes your Oracle. Hmm. So you can do th those two things. Um, but so, okay, so for starters in the world of governance, right, you have this Oracle problem, which is very hard to get away from. And then you have this like, well, at the end of the day, you're relying on the actors in the system to actually enforce the rules. So like you can't, you, I don't really think you can get away from either of those problems. Yeah. But then, yeah. Well, uh, I, anyway, I was going to say like, yeah, there is a, there is this issue of like, you're not really ever going to automate the entire thing. There still has to be this human component. There still have to be humans participating in the network in order to continue feeding it data in order to update it properly. Um, and so there are certain things you can verify uh, the veracity of, but you're not necessarily going to eliminate that human component. And I think that's where you run into like some of the limitations for, for example, what many of us would have thought that DAOs uh, might bring and maybe they'll eventually get there but right now um it there's still a lot of like yeah there's still a lot of like fuzziness i guess around what exactly is possible and and what's viable um to prepare for this and also just for my own investigations i've looked into some of the applications that are currently in place in uh in governments uh you know how they have tried to use blockchain technologies mostly blockchain technologies to you know, run their operations differently. I'd say the most prominent example of this would be Estonia. So Estonia um, was very early in the crypto space. They even claimed that they were building out blockchains uh, before Bitcoin was released, which is curious, but um, in like 2007. But um, uh, Estonia has actually, you know, basically just added huge ch chunks of their government uh, onto onto blockchain systems, right? Instead of central and, and 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 the basic innovation here isn't too 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 crazy. They just instead of having these centralized databases, they have a decentralized database for things like voting and banking and uh, various aspects of uh, citizenship verification. For example, you can become a digital citizen of Estonia even if you don't live there. Um, I'm not aware of any other country that allows you to do that or what exactly that means, but it does entitle you to some benefits and, and so forth that uh, operating within the Estonian governmental ecosystem <clears throat> that uh, 
really calls into question, like, for example, like, why am I still going to the DMV? <laughs> like, like, well, I, I don't that's know. That's a great question. I mean, we don't need decentralized technology to solve those problems, right? That's yeah, yeah. just like run of the mill government dysfunction. Well, but, um... <laughs> there, there, there is some added benefit to security and transparency. So, for example, um, one of the arguments, you're correct that you, you have to not get carried away and just say, oh, well, we're just going to like throw it on a blockchain and we don't really have a reason for it. We just think it'll be better because it's like using that buzzword or something. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are reasons uh, for doing so. One of which, for example, is that uh, if you make a, for example, in their medical system, if you make a change to a medical record, there's no way for someone to go in and tamper that medical record or remove it or change it in some way. Um, and so it actually does limit uh, the abuse of governmental powers in that sense. Um, because That's true. I mean, it also, yeah. it creates a new class of issue too. Like, you know, for instance, um, say you have like a property titling for a county is done on the blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you buy a house, what you're actually buying is the private key to that, you know, ledger entry in the sort of like property registry that the county maintains. Okay. And, you know, in cryptocurrencies, when you lose your private key, you're screwed, right? Your crypto has gone. Okay. If you lose your private key, do you lose your house? And, and, you know, okay, maybe you can create a new system where it's like, okay, but actually if a sufficient number of your neighbors vote that you actually control that house, then you get your key back. Right. And we have a smart contract that that generates it. Um, so, you know, you can avoid abuses by sort of the, the small town clerk, like redrawing property lines for bribes, but you, you also get this whole new class of issue. Um, like what, what if I do want to change something? What if someone forgets something? What if someone entered data incorrectly? Like, how do we fix those problems? And those are hard to do and they require a lot of work to, to actually think through, right? You can have these sort of um, like proof of neighbor ideas, but those those are, are, you know, well, and those could be cool, right? It could force you to have good relationships with your neighbors um, mm-hmm. and that could, that could incentivize good behavior. Um, yeah, and I think some of the purest models for thinking about like what could decentralized government look like is, is like these big new crypto projects where they're truly decentralized organizations and they truly have voting power from the token holders and they're really controlling billions of dollars. So if someone can abuse their governance system, they just lost billions of dollars, right? So that's like a pretty good incentive to get it right. Yeah, um, well I was going to say, you know, on a meta level, one of the most appealing things about the entire crypto space is that a tremendous amount of the problems that that their task with solving uh, various communities are these kinds of problems. How do you build community? How do you like they're solving basic governance problems? And I don't mean governance in the in the term uh, in the sense of government. I mean, governance in the term in, in, in the sense of how do you coordinate together? How do you decide upon common rules? Uh, how do you you know organize processes within this system uh, that are you know, like you said, going to prevent abuse, going to secure 
the system going to uh, provide some amount of equity for participants, et cetera. Um, a tremendous amount of energy goes into just simply designing these systems and setting them up the right way. And then also iterating on them, finding out, okay, what were the problems with the way that we set this one up? How could we set this up differently next time? Or how do we actually, through the processes that we've already created, how do we try to like go back and manipulate it, whether that's forking or something less uh, drastic um, to, to figure that out. And so that's actually one of the biggest appeals to me is that they're actually solving all of these like core governance problems that you would think about, for example, if you were setting up a new country, right? If you were setting up a new country and let's say you have like an initial starting population and an initial uh, treasury, um, you would have to like build out an entire system for how everything would, would be distributed and also how everything would be governed. Um, and I see that's what's happening in the virtual space inside of these communities. And that's really what's exciting uh, about it to me. Um, and uh, I guess one last thing I'll say on this is that, uh, you know, the history of like constitutional republics is, is based on this concept of a social contract, right? So we have social contract theory. And, you know, even though none of us signed the US Constitution, uh, we are in effect bound to this social contract that exists. And in principle, you know, we, we have, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, maybe some of this stuff is actually difficult to implement in a real sense. But in principle, there's no reason for uh, having the rules of your government laid out on a 300-year-old piece of paper, right? Um, yeah. And you could have something like a constitution that is in the form of a smart contract. Now, again, it's unclear exactly how that would all be implemented, how you would verify that the rules are being followed, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be all kinds of room for um, discretion on the part of you know, voting members and, and judges and whatnot, because at some point you have to interface with the real human world. But mm -hmm. uh, this is like the core idea that I wanted to get around to, which is that if you have a community of people and you have a, uh, a common currency and you have a set of rules that they follow, then you pretty much have a country with, with the only difference being that there's not a recognition of sovereignty and they don't control like a piece of physical land. W would, that be, would that be correct in your opinion? Maybe. I mean, I think that you can kind of have these like pseudo, like to the extent, you know, that we call like multinational corporations, like nationless, right? I think like you could draw a comparison to that. I think, I mean, I'm kind of a believer that at the end of the day, like sovereignty kind of comes down to physical defensibility. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that necessarily like speaks to that or, or, or has an impact on it. But yeah, I mean, you absolutely can create these collectives of people that are agreeing to these rules and are kind of like bound to them from the outset and you have much stronger guarantees around it. And, you know, I think that like looking back on, on say, oh, well, could we have redone the U.S. Constitution? Like if we had this technology like that, that could be interesting, um, but it would be really hard but 
where maybe looking forward, like, okay, as we, as we get more and more into the digital world, right? Like as we live more in, in virtual reality, or we have just more of our existence embedded in this like digital ecosystem, then I think that these kinds of systems will gain a lot more power because they actually have enforceability. Um, and so you will have these kind of like really powerful entities that live in the digital space that are governed in these ways. And you're kind of already starting to have that where you do have these pools of, of, of capital and control, um, you know, where you can say, well, who's allowed to write code to this system is controlled by voting rights. And, and what are the ways that people are allowed? You know, like, for instance, you know, you could create an Uber where mm -hmm. it was a completely decentralized system. And you had, you know, the ability to commit to the, the code base and publish the app was controlled by voting rights and a token and who got paid out and how much was controlled by the system, right? So this is a thing that is virtual, but kind of has strong implications in the real world because of the incentive system it's creating around it. Um, as far as like full sovereign nation kind of things, like, you know, I think that it's possible. Um, and, and, but I kind of get too caught up in the, I think defining rules that really address all the edge cases and all the different incentives that you create is really, really, really hard to do right. And when that happens with the constitution, we kind of just go like, oh, let's think about that. Or like, let, let's give some judges the ability to like, think that through a little bit more carefully. And with smart contracts, like that's not an option. Or then you have to go and you have to create like a second layer of government. You have to go like, oh, okay, we're gonna create this like interpretation layer over our smart contract layer. Mm -hmm. Or you have to create the smart contract layer in such a way that it's like very mutable. Um, and, and so, and then how is it mutable, right? Like, cause we kind of have that. We say, okay, well, you know, if two thirds of the, the Congress says change it, you know, so it goes. Um, yeah. and so it could work. I mean, it could be cool. Like I wouldn't be surprised if some people try it. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you could even have like a internal judge system where a small number of participants have like, let's say outsized voting power on particular issues and the ability to amend contracts or rewrite them or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you could actually, you know, do a lot of stuff that way. And then of course, uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of problems. Is like, for example, like how do you actually legislate? Um, is like unclear. Like, are you going to like take every piece of legislation that gets passed and like turn it into a smart contract? Probably not. I don't know exactly like what the what even what the benefit would there there would be. But again, you know, whenever we legislate anything, those are ultimately just like a bunch of words that are written somewhere on a document, and people agree to follow them because they're supposed to. And that's basically the extent of it. Of course, it's backed up by force at some point, but most mm -hmm. of the time, that's not what's what's happening. Most of the time, the the piece of paper goes out, and then everybody hears about it, and then this is these are the rules. Now we're playing by these new rules. Um, and but so, so then, playing devil's advocate, like, what's yeah. the value of putting it in a smart contract versus paper? Uh, well, I mean, I I don't think that there. I mean, like I said, I don't think there necessarily is going to be one in every case. Um, I, I just think in terms of how you can, uh, the, the design fit space for governance and voting and these kinds of things 
is drastically expanded by the existence of these technologies. Um, and so mm -hmm. the way that our system is set up now is uh, very old. And the founders who are imagining, let's say, the American system uh, didn't have a lot of history to go off of in terms of previous democracies that actually like, were successful and lived a long time. Uh, and so they crafted the best system that they could. And, uh, you know, there are obviously improvements to be made upon that. It's not clear exactly what what those might be but there are lots of arguments that you can put forward about how the constitution could be differently or how separation of powers could go differently or how you might reorganize congress and all of that was basically uh you know based on this like old parliamentary framework or well actually for the u.s congress it would have been like like pre-parliamentary i mean there was some aspects of english inheritance but uh, they were also looking at, like, for example, like the Roman and Athenian democracies. Um, and so I just see this as a way to, uh, as a starting point for rethinking, like, how we could do all of this stuff all over again. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, back in 1776 or whatever it might might have been, uh, they had to figure out a way to, like, create a democracy where one didn't exist give everyone, you know, plausible uh, stake in the system through voting power and certain kinds of rights and property rights and so forth. And so this just gives us an opportunity to do some interesting thought experiments about how all of that could be reshaped. And a lot of the way that it could be reshaped is by this, this core uh, principle of decentralization changes a lot of how you would reconstruct something if you were starting over from scratch. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, I'm really excited just that there are a ton of really smart people all of a sudden now thinking about like, oh, well, actually, this is kind of a hairy problem. And how do we actually like mechanistically come up with, you know, cons consensus in a decentralized format, right? Because at some level, well, we're a republic, right? But we pretend that we're mm -hmm. pure democracy and like, okay, so we're, we're striving for this ideal of like everybody gets a vote. Um, and so, you know, just thinking through the problems really associated with that, like, I think could result in people coming up with interesting ideas of, like, what should government look like in the next era? And there are people, like, that are putting this into practice at, you know, not a nation state level, but a, like, we have this project, it's an impactful project, it manages, like, material amounts of resources, and it's being completely managed decentralized in, in a decentralized way. And so, um, it's going to be, it's going to be cool to see how this, this all plays out. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you also introduce like lots of new problems, right? Like, okay, mm -hmm. well, when a Senator loses, how do you confiscate their private key? <laughs> and, and, or when someone dies, how do you hand over ownership of their office? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like key management becomes just like this nightmare problem that like needs to be solved. And I think Vitalik has some interesting ideas about this around, um, kind of similar to that neighbor idea. Like there has to be some concept of like, can your friends reinstate this for you? And I like those, I like building like systems like that because it's getting back to community. It's kind of like pushing people to be more human with this because of this digital layer. Yeah. And that could be a cool thing that emerges. Yeah, I mean, so it'll be interesting what kind of problems uh, we can get solved. But I definitely agree with you that most of the problems that there are to solve, which there are many, are extremely hairy problems and you actually do need like 
you know, really brilliant, uh, smart, technical people who are working on these in a real way in terms of infrastructure um, to kind of build that because there's just so much left to build. There's so much left to build. Um, Absolutely. Right, Gabriel. Well, we're uh, close to the end of our time here today. I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this has been really good primer uh, for just sort of beginning to delve into this question about what are the implications for decentralization on uh, the future of governance. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go is what are you hoping for to see within the next five to 10 years in terms of developments in this space? Mm, um Well, I'm excited for some of these projects that are coming out, like that really seem to be hitting the stride of like transactions are happening really quickly. People are able to build meaningful systems with with good interfaces. So I I'm excited for kind of um, you know D DeFi to get its wings. Um, and more than that, like I'm excited for people to say, okay, blockchain's great, but how can we build really good, robust, decentralized systems that maybe don't, maybe blockchain's not the best solution? Like, how do we build social networks that are decentralized? How do we build just general, um, like high privacy, high decentral, high de highly decentralized, encrypted utilities for the internet? Um, and I, I'm excited that some of those things are going to start rolling out. Cool. Well, thanks so much. This has been, uh, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Alex.